Welcome, everyone. This is a Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Professor Usha R. Rodriguez from the University of Georgia Law School. Professor Rodriguez is the co-author of a research paper on Special Purpose Acquisition Companies, or SPACs. The professor is also currently conducting ongoing active research into SPACs. And last month, Professor Rodriguez testified before a committee of the U.S. Congress at a hearing entitled, quote, Going Public, SPACs, Direct Listings, Public Offerings, and the Need for Investor Protections, unquote. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for speaking with us today. Thanks for having me. This is my first podcast, so I'm extra excited to be with you today. That's great. Professor, in connection with your recent congressional testimony, you compared special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs to a Las Vegas wedding. So for someone who's never invested in a SPAC or attended a Las Vegas wedding, please explain. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so I have a confession to make, Jeff, which is that I actually have never attended a Vegas wedding either. However, I have seen the movie The Hangover several times. Um, that's the extent of my knowledge. So um, in the lead up to my congressional testimony, I was trying to think of a good analogy for SPACs and comparing them to traditional IPOs. And I came up with this wedding analogy. So, you know, I love going to weddings. There's good food. People are drinking. They're happy. Families are coming together. More than anything, you know that a lot of planning has gone into that day. There are countless choices as to food and flowers and timing and the wording of the vows. So there'll be discussions and arguments, and there are sometimes lots of tears just to make that one day just right. So a traditional IPO is like a wedding in that way. The planning starts out months ahead of time. The CEO and CFO, the general counsel have been dreaming of for years of the day when they're ready to go public. And there's a process, right? Just like with a wedding. So they interview a series of investment banks. They select the right one to lead the offering. The lead underwriting bank then shepherds the company through the process. And it works with the company to draft the initial disclosure statement, which is called a registration statement. It files it confidentially with the SEC. Then the SEC comments on the draft. The company responds. They go back and forth several times. Finally, it files its first public registration statement. Then they launch the roadshow, the banks and the company, and they try to explain the company's business to interested investors. The SEC continues to ask comments, to comment, asking for clarifications. And finally, when the SEC signals it has no more comments and it's comfortable, the bank is comfortable that there are no material misstatements, only then will the offering price and the public begin to buy shares at the IPO and afterwards. So if an IPO is a traditional wedding, well, then, you know, the SPAC is, as we'll see, more of a Vegas wedding because it just doesn't have that same level of preparation and vetting. But it's still a legal wedding, right? That's the point. The point is that at the end of the day, there are two very different processes that wind up with the same legal result, which is a publicly traded company. And uh, I think we'll probably talk a little more about why that can be problematic. Professor, I often hear the term DSPAC 
and a DSPAC transaction. So can you explain what is a DSPAC transaction? <laughs> sure. It's kind of an inelegant term, I, I think, but that's the term that we use. So the big difference between a private company and a public one has to do with disclosure. And so public companies have to disclose a lot more than private ones. The process of moving from private to public is the IPO, as you know. Um, it's a more rigorous and difficult process because you have to level up for the public markets or up your game or get ready for the big leagues. These are all metaphors, by the way, that I thought about on, on the way to Vegas, my Vegas wedding. The SPAC goes public in the traditional way, but then it says to the public, hey, we're going to raise a bunch of money and put it into escrow, safe in a trust account. We won't touch it. And then give us 18 to 24 months, we're going to find a private company that we'll acquire by way of a merger. And once we find one, you'll have a vote on whether or not to acquire it, and you'll have a chance to get your money back if you want to. So that acquisition is called the DSPAC. After the merger, the company is magically public because it has been acquired by the SPAC, which is this public shell. And that's the Vegas wedding. We end up with the same legal result as a traditional IPO. The company is public, but we didn't go through that rigorous going public process. So, Professor, can you talk about how a DSPAC transaction differs from the traditional IPO? So, it all starts with the investment bank's liability. The securities laws under Section 11 of the 33 Act um, assign pretty strict liability to the investment bank, which is a really smart, me mechanically, it's a really smart idea, right? Because back in 33, Congress was concerned with all of these once private companies going public and lying to investors and saying, sure, you know, we own shares of the Brooklyn Bridge, we own the Brooklyn Bridge and you can buy shares of it. And then they take off with the money and the poor investors are left holding the bag. So what the 33 Act does is say, investment bank, you're the one that buys shares of the company from the company and then turns around and sells them to the public. Well, you're on the hook. If there are, if there's fraud, if there are material misstatements, then you're going to have to be liable for that. And what does that do? It makes the investment bank police those offerings. It turns the investment bank into someone, into an entity that is checking and double checking and triple checking all of those disclosures to make sure that they are accurate and complete. Because if they're not, then the investment bank is going to be liable, subject to a due diligence defense, you um, lawyers out there know, but still fundamentally liable. So there's that section 11 liability that attaches for the invest to the investment bank in the traditional IPO, but not in the DSPAC. And then related to that, uh, there's no outright ban against making uh, what are called forward projections. That is, you know, investors are, are really interested, sure, in what the company did in the past, but also what the management thinks about the company's prospects. Well, these sort of forward-looking projections are typically not in the IPO documents because there's all of that liability concern. The banks don't usually let them through. But in a DSPAC, we'll, you see a lot of forward-looking projections where the company will talk about what it thinks in terms of sales or revenue, 
a year or several years down the line, which is, of course, attractive when you're thinking about going public, but is also more risky. So in um, in terms of, of the big liability concerns and the, the big um, differences between a DSPAC and an IPO from the investor side, those are the two big differences, the liability and the forward-looking projections. In terms of the target, if you're interested in the target, the one thing that the, the target or the, um, the private company that goes public, they get the certainty of a deal and the certainty of a price, which are things that they don't get from a traditional IPO. So, Professor, in your congressional testimony, you advocated for voting reform for SPACs. So what does that mean and why do you believe it's necessary? Okay, so uh, here's the crazy thing about the DSPAC. Um, you can vote for the merger. You're share, a shareholder of the SPAC and you can, the SPAC sponsors, the SPAC organizers come to you and they say, we've got this great private target that we think we should acquire and take public. We want you to vote for the deal. We require a majority vote. Well, you can vote for the deal and then you can ask to get your money back from the trust account. So you can say, sure, I'll vote to acquire this company, but I don't want anything to do with it. And I think that's crazy. So so typically when we think about reform in securities law, we think about more disclosure. We need more clear disclosure on the DSPAC. And there certainly have been those reforms floated, and I agree with them. I just don't think that disclosure is enough in this case because the what I've described is that the voting interest and the economic interest are decoupled. And so I think that needs to be reformed in order to really protect shareholders. So I think that if more than 50% of the shareholders redeem their shares and ask to get their money back, then the deal should not go forward. Final question. Professor, speaking of voting reform, you previously worked as a corporate lawyer in Silicon Valley. So why is it that some corporate lawyers in Silicon Valley insist that public companies with dual-class stock structures benefit long-term investors? Well, Jeff, this is a this is really sort of a philosophical question. Um, it's it ties into a, a big debate uh, that that has been going on for a long time and that I find fascinating. And this is about you know what do you think about investors in the market? What do you think the role of the market is? So if you think that investors are all short termers, they're they're distracted by flashes in the pan. They don't understand that you need, let's say, to invest $100 million in a project for a factory or a new product, and it'll be worth a billion dollars later, but it's going to cost you up front. So if you don't think that the market um, can reflect that, can, can is amenable to these kinds of long-term decisions, then you want to take some power away from the market and give the managers of the corporation some discretion so that they can make these choices and manage for the long-term in a way that that insulates them from the vagaries of the market. But of course, what does this do? It also insulates managers from the vagaries of the market, which means that if there are bad managers, they are entrenched. They are not going to uh, risk losing their job. So we talk often in corporate law about the market for corporate control, which basically says, look, 
how it should work is if the managers are doing a bad job, if they're slacking, if they're dumb, you know, they're, they're making bad choices, then the stock price is going to go down. And because shareholders are going to sell, they're going to say, this is a loser company and they're going to sell. So if the price drops enough, then eventually better managers can come in, buy up the shares and manage the company better. So, and that, that makes everything better, right? It's good for the shareholders in the long term. Well, a dual class structure makes that much harder because the voting, it's sort of like what we just talked about, right? The voting interests and the economic interests are somewhat decoupled. So this, I, you know, I tell my, my corporate law uh, class, it's really a fundamentally about the tension between accountability and discretion. Dual class common gives um, a lot more discretion to the managers. And maybe you think that's a good thing. Maybe you think that Google's managers are really good managers and Mark Zuckerberg knows better than the market. And so then you want to invest in a company like that because it protects them and their discretion, but it also lessens accountability. So then we have, you know, uh, Travis Kalanick at Uber who had to basically agree to step down because under dual class, he couldn't have been voted out even though he was clearly um, a somewhat problematic CEO. So that's why, right? That's why some corporate lawyers in Silicon Valley think that dual class stock structures benefit long-term investors. It sort of depends on this philosophical question of what do you think about the market and the role of the market and how much discretion, how much discretion you think uh, managers should have. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to thank our special guest, Professor Usha R. Rodriguez from the University of Georgia Law School. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.